Let me pray. Gracious Father, for this new day, I give you thanks. Um, uh, pray for this uh, church, for this assembled body. Um, pray now for this word. Uh, pray that your word, especially at the beginning of a new series here in John, uh, that you would speak to us in a way that is living and active uh, and make it helpful, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, good to see everybody again. I haven't... Uh, uh, kind of took a few weeks off since before Christmas. Um, good to kind of get back in the groove. I uh, feel like I say this every single time, but it's probably because it's completely true. Um, I was talking to Maymay in the last week. Uh, you know, I came home on Friday afternoon. I was like, I still have no idea where I'm going with class on Sunday. Um, so like I usually do, I got up on yesterday and, and kind of sat with it for a while. And I, th- I hope something's coming together. Um, uh, we're going to look at for five weeks the five chapters in John, which sometimes technically are called the uh, the upper room discourse, which just means it's the night before um, the monkey trial and all that start. And so it's Palm uh, Palm no not Palm Sunday Monday Thursday night is the idea the night of the Last Supper that's what it starts. We're going to look at that today um, uh, right through the end uh, in John 17 where Jesus. Uh, Praise. It's the longest prayers we have of Jesus in John 17, where he prays for what himself, um, for his disciples, the apostles, the, the eleven that are left, and then the, the world, all of us. And so that's where we're headed the next five weeks. Um, usually, the way I come up with with series, uh, I think it's a good way. Um, I, I like to think it's the Holy Spirit. I was reading over Thanksgiving Tim Keller's new marriage book. Um, which is great, by the way. You know, unashamed plug out there in the, the bookstore. It really is it's worth the $20. Uh, and he talked just kind of in passing, and I think he had a long footnote about something about the Holy Spirit, because we hear a lot about the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit, especially in John 14 and 15, where we'll go next, the next two classes. Uh, just at that moment when I was reading, things really kind of picked up, and a lot of things fell into place, and my juices were flowing, and I'm always sudden, what's my next class? What's my next? I thought, oh, that's it. must be the Holy Spirit. Well, it's probably you know, Thanksgiving indigestion or something like that, because it kind of cooled off after that. Um, uh, but anyway, um, pick back up, and where, where it is, the words from the end of the world. Um, what I have in mind there is kind of a play on the words in lots of different ways. Jesus talks a lot about the world here. In fact, um, the beginning, um, uh, uh, John 13:1 reads, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so there's even the phrase that goes on there, um, loving them to the end, to the end of the world. What does all that mean? Well, we're about to move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so there's the shift, a new age, the new dawn. Um, the Bible would later, will later call this, in, in, in St. Paul and others, the beginning of the last days, sort of the time before, uh, before the very end, what theologians call the eschaton. So this is all about eschatology, which just means the end of the world. As we know it, the end of time, when, when the timekeeper God comes out and says, okay, time's up, you know, the, the, the clock's run out, everything has run its course, the, uh, the fullness of time has reached its end. Um, there's all that, words from the end of the world. Um, uh, there's the, the, the more sort of earthly way that Jesus would mean it, that his hour had come. Um, it, is for, uh, uh, it is for this hour, Jesus says elsewhere in John. 
that I came into the world. And this hour, he's very aware, is what's going to happen to him tomorrow, the cross. Um, it was for exactly this that I have come. Um, for no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And so Jesus is very aware it's the end of his world. It's the end of his life, his earthly life. And so it's words from the end of that. But the bridge, the leap, um, and hopefully I'm going to do this with a lot of sort of YouTube pieces on some psychology experiments, kind of play with that a little bit more. That's what I've got queued up for today. Um, it's, uh, it's our own many ends of the world. Um, as I looked at a few series ago, I can't remember what it is. It's the first time with this very unhelpful clip, which does not work. Um, uh, our own ends of the world, our own apocalypses, my own apocalypse now, what is that? My, my divorce or the child that's not working out the way I thought it was going to work out. Or, um, you know, I'm 48 and this is it. This is it. This is what I spent all my career working towards. And now I'm just in middle management and I'm plainly on the way down. Um, uh, where we kind of run to the end of the rope and there's all the addiction stuff. That can go. And I'm not sure where we're going to play that, but all those different sort of mini apocalypses, mini ends of the world uh, that we each experience. Um, uh, life best seen, you know, in the hospital room, that kind of place where you see things most clearly, um, when you really know what matters and what doesn't, when the dross gets separated, those, those clear moments, those magnified moments, um, words from that end of the world. And then lastly, and there's definitely the U2 play that goes on with this and their song from Octung Baby, so there's the gratuitous reference, um, the sense that Christ, who goes to the end of the world and loves them to the end, his own end, and then he's still there waiting, that words from the end of the world, as he's already gone there and is waiting for us at the end of our rope, that words from the end of the world, uh, Christ's parting words in Matthew come to mind, the Great Commission, um, lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age, even to the end of the world. So at the bottom of the ladder, at when, we, when we're on our last rung, um, we're at the end of our rope, and better, when we're at the end of the rope and we try and we try and we try, and finally I run out of steam and I just let go. I just let go. That's in fact the best place to meet God, um, right there at the end when we uh, let go and find that Christ is already there. Lo, I am there, Psalm 139. Um, Whither shall I go from your presence? If I fall into the depths of Sheol, if I fall into the depths of Hades, you might even say hell, you are already there. Um, that's the place where God is most. So, and I'm not going to stay that heavy all the time. Um, there'll be some funny stuff today with elevators and, and lines that mismatch and everything else. Hopefully, hopefully a lot of fun, a lot of play and all that stuff. But that's all sort of the idea, these words from the end of the world. Because this is, John, and we're not going to do verse by verse because it's way, it's way too long. Um, it's really pretty thick, uh, John 13 through 17. Um, John's pretty wordy, uh, very redundant, but each redundancy sort of sheds light, just a hair's difference. And so it's, you know, we're not going to parse it out quite that that, uh, that heavily, but it's very befitting for Lent, which is kind of a, a season that we're looking ahead to. So that's where we're headed um, for the next few weeks uh, and kind of how we got there, at least in my mind. Um, uh, as always, I love feedback, especially if you have any ideas for, for coming weeks or any familiarity with uh, what's what there. And we're going to hear a lot of really familiar phrases. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Um, 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing that's in there. Uh, uh, today, of course, the washing of the disciples' feet, where we get the word mondi, the new command, I give you, um, uh, love one another as I have loved you, all that. So it's, it's going to be, hopefully, a good, good context. To get there, what, what happened in John, because this is really part two in the gospel, and I'm going to do this real quick. If you have a, a Bible, um, you can just flip through if you want, John 1 through, through 12. Uh, signs are a big deal to John, um, uh, more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Signs, um, as I've said often, you never get to a sign and say, oh good, we're here. You get to a sign because it's telling you where you're going to go. You don't get to a sign that says the Grand Canyon 424 miles ahead and say, okay kids, get out, we're, we're at the Grand Canyon. Um, uh, you of course know that it's leading you to something else. And Jesus was very emphatic in John in particular uh, that his, uh, his work, the miracles, in fact the embodiment of his life uh, uh, up to this point was as a sign, the signs and wonders uh, that is often there. That, that they are not the, the changing of the water into wine or the feeding of the 5,000 or um, the raising of, a, of, a, of the officials um, daughter from, from the dead. None of those were an end unto themselves, just like the sign of the Grand Canyon is not the end of the trip. It's saying this wasn't it. It's pointing to something else, right up to and especially including the resurrection of Lazarus, saying that is not the end of the day. The hour, that's not even the hour for which I came. It's something even greater. Um, and so, to, to just kind of give us a context, in John 2, um, that's where he changes the water into the wine and he cleanses the temple. In John 3, it's where we get, of course, John 3.16. Um, Tim Tebow just will not go away. Um, um, uh, with his interactions with Nicodemus, uh, uh, with, of course, God so loved the world, that, that, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then in John 4, um, and John, it's, if, if you like, a slower pace with a lot of detail. John is your gospel. He's sort of the anti-Mark. Um, uh, John, really, there's maybe 15 scenes. Like if you were doing, a, a, if you were a director and you were trying to film the Gospel of John, you probably only have 15 sets. I guess is that word. He just doesn't move around that much because all of John 4 is interaction with the <coughs> what we call the Samaritan woman at the well, where it's the woman who. Uh, uh, when strangely Jesus arranges it so that he's alone with a woman at the well in the middle of the day when nobody else is going to be around. And so there's all that sort of uh, uh, scandalous undertone to it. And then uh, it says, where's your husband? And she says, I don't have a husband. And he suddenly plays Yoda and like, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've been married, what, five times. Um, and you're living with your sixth. She's like, go through the whole thing. And later she goes, come meet this guy who told me everything I've ever done. Um, and he's a sign. All that's moving. And that's John 4. The healing at the pool. This really strange uh, myth, legend, story that has uh, the pool at, uh, at the, what, the Sheep's Gate. Um, pool of Siloam, I think it was called. Uh, where if an angel comes down and there's a ripple over the water, the first one in the water gets healed. And so that's what it was. And so invalids and all that would hang around there forever. Uh, trying to be the one to get healed. And, uh, and there's a guy that's been there for, it's all about memory, what, 17 years sticks out. Um, uh, and he's an invalid. He's a, he's, a, he's a paraplegic or a quadriplegic. And so, you know, he can't 
make himself get into the pool. And so there he is, you know, at the edge of the water, but without any opportunity to be healed. And Jesus comes up with the strangest, seemingly the strangest question of all. Uh, do you remember what he asks him? This man who's been sick and hanging around by the healing pool. Jesus says, do you want to get well? <laughs> this guy's like, idiot, what are you doing? To me? Um, so that's John 5. And then the feeding of the 5,000 where he talks about, I am the bread of life. Jesus and John is always, you know, uh, if, if in if in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially Mark, he's like, don't tell anybody. Shh, you know, want to keep it on the lowdown. And John, he's like, you know, you know wearing a Superman suit. Um, uh, he's like, I am the bread of the world. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. Um, I am uh, uh, before Abraham was. I am all the I am statements, which go back to, to of course, um, uh, one of the names for God, which we call Yahweh. Um, uh, it says, I am the bread of the life. And then in John 7, uh, the teaching at the temple, a long teaching section. John 8, the woman caught in adultery. Woman, um, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then he continues that to say, I am the light of the world. Um, another healing of a man born blind and Jesus being the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Um, John 11, one of the real sort of climaxes of part one, the healing of Lazarus. Um, uh, one of his good friends, where we find Jesus weeping and being moved uh, to the point of tears, uh, where we get a lot of our funeral liturgy, I am the resurrection and the life. And then ultimately then to John 12, Mary, the sister of Martha, and the whole Martha, Martha, you are concerned and worried about many things. Both of them were the brother and sister of Lazarus, the guy who was just raised and now out of her devotion, uh, a devotion born out of gratitude. She breaks, um, you know, a $4,000 jar of, of ointment and washes his feet with her uh, with his with her hair sort of symbolizing the beginning of a of a death ritual the embalming and all that stuff so all that then is john the context where we're coming in uh, uh and now jesus says okay enough of that um i've got you where i want you you 12 about to become 11 the people that he he even says here i know whom i have chosen and i've chosen the 12 of you uh, and now I want to unpack the signs and tell you what they really are all about um, because it's not the sign of the Grand Canyon but the Grand Canyon. None of that mattered, he's saying. Now I'm going to tell you why I'm here and what's about to happen. And so that's where we are in John uh, John 13. Um, and then we're going to find him washing the disciples' feet, do as I have done you, have done to you, um, the prediction of Judas's betrayal, and then ultimately him leaving. If you're ever on the Easter walk, this is a the great scene. Um, there's Josh. Uh, he usually plays Judas. Are you Judas or Jesus? You're Judas. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the, uh, the new commandment to love one another. Um, and then finally, Jesus predicting Peter's denial, which we'll spend some time with. Um, so before we read it, any, any comments or thoughts? Um, kind of setting up the course and then also thinking about, about John, John 1 through 12. Very interesting gospel, the gospel of John. Let's read part, then, of, uh, of John um, 13. Uh, as I mentioned, um, uh, real narrative flow to all of John, since he is going at such a slow pace, he can develop drama and plot and story and characters and all that stuff. Uh, he washes, you can see the, what they call the pericopes, just the headings. Um, he washes the disciples' feet, and then uh, his prediction that one is going to betray him, um, a new commandment is giving, and then Jesus foretelling... Uh, of, uh, of, of Peter's death um, as he tells, of them, tells Peter of his own. 
Uh, we'll read uh, the first 12 verses, um, and then I'll stop, and we'll, uh, we'll play with that for a little bit, and then we'll see about reading uh, verses 31 through 38. So John 13, 1 through 12. Um, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Um, uh, comment in a minute. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was going to, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, "Not all of you are clean." And we had, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, "Do you understand what I've done to you? What I've done to you?" Um, that's ending it a little bit you know, out of context or off tonic, but it's that lack of understanding that I want to end on. A um, little bit about this. Uh, uh, now, before the feast of the Passover, um, this is how the uh, the cross um, was timed with the, the feast of the Passover, which then fits with the chronology of the of the cross. Why they had to come down at a certain time, and they hurried the, the crucifixion on. That Jesus was uh, was found to be dead already, sort of untimely. Um, they didn't have to break his legs like they did the uh, the two robbers that were there. And this is to fulfill he's partly. What Jesus said, that, that uh, no one takes my life, I lay it down of my own accord. It was almost his volitional and willful act to, uh, to, uh, to say it is finished and then breathe and give up his, uh, his spirit, as John would say later. Um, and then he continues and says, Jesus knew that his hour had come. There's no, there's no happenstance here. This is a purposeful move. Jesus knows what he's doing. Um, uh, and he's in complete control of his own death, even. Um, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And having loved his own, really the apostles, the twelve disciples, who were, uh, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Just sort of the way I played it out, both to the end of his own life, um, but you could also say to the end of, uh, of this age, as a new age is about to come with the, uh, with the cross coming. So then during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. So again, not, not a sense that, that he was surprised by Judas. Um, John is, in fact, where we get the most, uh, the greatest sense of who Judas is. And it leaves it open, although um, in the first part of John 13, it says the devil entered Judas, and then later it's going to say, and then Satan entered him. A slight difference between the two, the devil being, what is that? The slanderer is what we might say, and then, then Satan being the accuser. You know, slight difference, but not much. Um, 
that, uh, that there's this conspiracy, that when the devil conspires to have, uh, have it done, uh, if, and it's, it remains even yet then beneath the hand of God. Now that's a heavy, heady word that's beginning to come on there. Uh, but John leaves no sort of edge there. I'm reminded of Frank, a sermon that, that Frank Limehouse preached not too long ago where he said something like, um, while there is much in this world that happens that is against the will of God, there is nothing in this world that will ever thwart the will of God. And that's how we begin to make, that's, that's, the, that's a foundational beginning to the question of how do we make sense of evil? How do I make sense of these, these ends of the world? This, uh, uh, you know, world that I'm running as it counts through these depressions, these mental illnesses, anxiety, uh, you know, bipolar, people that are just ill and sick, and, and the world seems to just continue to throw, to throw up on them, and they can never seem to get on top. Um, uh, a word of hope, really the only word of hope, is that, that God has not left them, that from the end of the world, God is, is there uh, waiting. God is there working. God is there doing something. Uh, and we see some of that here. That during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, nothing is outside the hand of God in Christ, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. And then to put a little bit of, 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 of a context on the second half of verse 4, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist and poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. It's hard to really sort of over, uh, over-dramatize what's going on here. Um, uh, there's a lot of Philippians 2, for those who keep up with that sort of thing, <laughs> uh, where it says, um, Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but, but uh, emptied himself and made himself a servant, I mean, becoming obedient, even obedient unto death. There's that sense of him emptying himself, where he rose from the table. So there's the drama. You can think of Leonardo da Vinci's you know, Last Supper painting, if you want to, where, where it's all arrayed, and, and they all kind of probably get a vibe that something big is about to happen. And then Jesus gets up from supper, and he's, he's the only one doing this, and so he'd be the focal point. Everybody would be watching him. And then he, he takes off his outer garments. And so there's that sense of, of emptying himself of, of, uh, as if he could disrobe from his divinity and, and, and take the form of a servant. He's not doing that, but it's as if he would because uh, he's clearly the master of the twelve. Um, but he is, is, is uh, by doing this, the echo that you hear here is taking off his outer garments. Those would be the distinction between the slaves, between the servants, between the, the help, between the common folk, between uh, just the pariah, the underclass. And, and the disciples were, were not above that. Even though they were just fishermen and all that, it still, I mean, think, think the help, the movie, which I haven't seen, but sort of 1950s Birmingham or something like that, where there was a strict um, and unquestioned code. Jesus gets up and just, you know, just, just just knocks everything over and just makes a big mess by disrobing in front of him because he immediately says, um, I'm not who you think I am. I am, uh, I am but the servant. And then he does everything out of sequence where 
uh, again, you know, this doesn't really fit for us because we don't wash our feet and have that as a sign of hospitality, etc. But you would do that at the beginning, not in the middle of supper. In the middle of dinner, he gets up and then he washes the disciples' feet. These gross, nasty things. You know, spent some time in Bolivia first half of my, my, my time here. And it was dusty, dirty, and they wear sandals 365 days a year. And they just have these nasty feet. I mean, calluses that are that deep with these cracks. I mean, they were just gross. And all of a sudden, and I would walk up these mountains uh, so steep. You were there. Um, you know, the, the guy would be right here because he was three feet ahead because we're, like, climbing up. I mean, so you just stared at this guy's feet for, like, five hours. <laughs> He went with me once up this mountain. Um, and that's all I could think about was like, to wash that foot. <laughs> it was disgusting. <laughs> and it was disgusting. Um, and that's exactly what their feet would have been. And so he gets up, uh, assumes the role of a slave, um, of the servant, of the common, taking a towel and tied it around his waist, poured water, etc., and so forth. Um, here's what I want to say about Peter. Um, kind of a bridge over to some of the psychology and human nature and all that stuff. Um, what's the root of Peter's insistence? I mean, we can look at him as the dolt, um, which, which he is, thanks be to God. Um, this is the first time Peter really takes, takes that role here in the Gospel of John, by the way. Peter's not been a big deal before this time. In, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he is, but, but not here. But what's the root of this resistance? Where he's, you know, Lord, you know, do you wash my feet? I mean, what a great and common question. As he's doing all this, he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I mean, that's his question. Lord, do you wash my feet? Made me think of this. Have you ever um, been embarrassed, even ashamed for somebody else when you kind of went on a limb and put yourself out there, whether it's in like your, your dog fight at golf or you know a certain club that you're in, uh, you kind of went on a limb and you invited somebody you didn't know that well, or even worse, you thought you knew them really well, but then they get there and in sort of your accepted group of four or five, six others, they do something really bad, like they, they use the wrong fork, <laughs> or, um, you know, they, uh, or, but thank you for laughing, um, or they, um, uh, you know, suddenly they, they start talking about something that, you, that was just totally inappropriate especially in this group, which you know its norms and all that. Uh, there's some of that going on. It's even worse if uh, that person happens to be your sibling, your sister or your brother, um, or your spouse or your child, where uh, suddenly you're with them and you know you're linked to them and you can't dissolve that link. And at the same time, they're a complete embarrassment to you. Uh, what's the typical response? Mine's anger. <laughs> and then I get angry at myself for being angry at this person that I brought or whom I love and I'm embarrassed by. Uh, and there's just this cycle that really has no end and no explanation and just completely defies any side of linear logic. Can I follow where I'm going? Maybe think of a time. Um, I think that's some of what's going on with Peter. When Jesus gets up, removes the outer garments, uh, and starts walking around, washing their feet, and he gets to Peter, and he's like, what are you doing? Lord, you would wash my feet? Uh, and then Jesus stays on his sort of hyper-spiritual plane. Unless I wash your feet, you'll have no part. And, he's like, and then Peter's like, well, then do everything. I mean, just do, what are you doing? And it's just, it's such a good answer. And I think it's got a lot of anger, which has a sense, you know, beneath that of fear. 
Because when we're afraid, we often show it as anger. And I think Peter is actually a little bit angry here. And I never knew that. I never saw that. I never thought about that until I got right here. Because I put myself... If I was there, I think I'd have been a little bit angry. What are you, what are you doing? Lord, you would wash my feet. Well, they're not my feet, but my hands, my head, and every part of me also. And then Jesus just... Then he responds in a way, of course, that makes no sense. It really just doesn't make sense. It seems a non sequitur. Um, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. And they're like, give us a bone here. Um, uh, and then verse 12. For when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, and so Jesus gets dressed again. Imagine the pregnant pause that must have been there. I mean, you could have heard you know, a pin drop. And he gets dressed again and he sits there and then Jesus turns around and he gives the question, do you understand what I've done? Well, of course, and later we won't go in there. Uh, John picks up on that sense and creates that drama. Um, the answer is plainly no. No. They don't know, and they won't know. Next two weeks, when we do John 14, uh, a huge role of the Holy Spirit for those particular 11 is going to be to, uh, to give them a very specific memory, um, a memory of the events as they happened, to also then attach new meaning to it, and we'll see that. Um, but for now, the answer is no. When he's at the brush jumping off point, um, that's us. We, and this is going to be sort of a, a thread for the whole series, I think, um, we are never accurate per- perceivers of what's actually going on. Um, we are 80% wrong about what's happening 80% of the time. And the other half of the time, we're not very good at that either. I mean, we, just, we just don't know what's going on. Um, uh, and this is going to be a thread that's in this. Um, uh, picked up a book by a behavioral economist at MIT named Dan Airely, I think, called Predictably Irrational. So that's where a lot of... Uh, this class is probably going to end up going, um, that we're not rational. We think we are. As children of the Enlightenment, um, of Descartes, I think, therefore I am, and the inheritors of college educations, et cetera, and so forth, we want to think that cognitively we understand what I'm looking at. I'm looking at Chip and Alan, and you know, I, I get what they're doing. They're acting like they're paying attention and all that stuff. <laughs> but that's not really what's going on. They really... Just kidding. Um, we don't know. Um, and so some ways around this... Um, even just uh, something as simple as like uh, a placebo. This was in the onion. I don't know how they were able to put AstraZeneca's thing on this. Um, you can't read the fine print. Maybe I can. It's called sucrosa, which you would know is just sugar. Like a placebo, a sugar tablet. Um, um, the placebo effect is uh, it's widely researched and documented and really works. Um, that it's an inert substance, which just means uh, it does not interact in any way with its environment. And so when you're talking about medicine, you take it and it doesn't do anything to you in your body. It's just um, uh, harmless. It goes in and it comes out and you're, you're no, no, nothing, nothing happens. You're not sleepy, you're not hungry, it has no sort of chemical effect. Well, the strange thing with the placebo, called the placebo effect, is it works. If you, if you think it's going to work, it works. Um, uh, and they do studies called double-blind where um, they give somebody, and this is how you test, Talk to Rita about this, how you test the efficacy of medications. You get new antidepressants on the market or something like that. And so they'll do it. 
with a, a sample size of so many hundreds of people, and they'll give half of them placebo and half of them the new medicine and the other half um, an established SSRI, and they'll do all sorts of comparisons, see how they do against placebos. Because if it's no better than a placebo, then what are you going to do? A lot of those really aren't that much better than placebos. Um, uh, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, uh, depends. A lot of them are. Um, uh, but you always want to look at placebos because there's something about when you take it, 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 it does something. Now, go even further, it even works when you know it's a placebo. That's how we're such poor, uh, poor perceivers, poor judges, poor, uh, uh, poor assessors of reality, of what's going on. I know it's a sugar pill. I take it and my headache goes away. Um, I take, uh, I have a headache, and you say, well, here's an aspirin, and it's worth a penny, um, or here's uh, a Motrin, and it's worth 50 cents. My headache feels better when I take what? The 50 cent Motrin. Um, well, really, they were the same, <laughs> and neither were either, and you think it's there. And then, so you go there, and, you, and then I even know that it's not um, actually Motrin, and I still feel better. So placebo effect is, uh, is the real deal. And so this all says it's going to work, sucrosa, the placebo. It's a pill. Laboratory studies have shown that sucrosa, placebo, is occasionally effective. And all this would be a true statement in the treatment of pain and discomfort associated with, I can't, else, can't read all this, right? Allergies, rhinitis, hives, you know, it goes through irritable bowels, I mean, all the way down here. But then side effects also include, and all these would be true, you know, rapid heartbeat, increased blood pressure, and cold, you know, and you think, where you take it and people begin to put into their feeling what they want to feel, that it's actually there. So somebody figured it out that it's not just fun to put it in the onion. You can actually buy this. Um, and by really good with, uh, uh, with words, what is Ovacalp? Placebo spelled backwards. Um, you can market this. They started it for children, that it was going to, you know, marketed to moms, that you can give it to your child, and, oh, my tummy hurts. And instead of putting a Band-Aid, you actually give them a pill. Uh, well, then they figured out, well, if it works for kids, maybe it works for adults, which, of course, it does. Um, and then the funny thing is, even the people that buy it, knowing it's a placebo, they take it, and they feel better. Um, uh, so all this is the real thing. Um, I brought... Uh, Airborne, you know, I'm probably going to offend some people. You, you taken this? You know, I have. That's why I have it. Um, herbal power, 17 nutrients. Airborne, for use in airplanes, restaurants, offices, hospitals, schools, health clubs, carpools, theaters, sports arenas. In other words, all those places where we're afraid of all those dirty people, that I'm going to get their nasty, sick germs. If I take this beforehand, it'll help me, and I won't do it. And they continue. Uh, they say, created by a second-grade school teacher. Um, the idea of like appealing to, well, Grandma knew what was going on. And the directions are, you know, simply drop, um, what does it say? Um, directions, simply drop airborne tablet in a small amount of plain water, let it dissolve, uh, and drink. Repeat every three hours as necessary. It's like, we don't need all that fancy science. Grandma knew what she was doing. We can do just as, and so they're tapping into these parts of who we are as very poor, um, because there's no, real studies that say this is very helpful. Um, but it works. Why? Because it's pleasant. It's got that fizz kind of Alka-Seltzer thing going. Uh, it makes me believe as I'm sitting next to uh, in, a, in an airplane and a bunch of dirty people and I'm going to get sick, um, that this is going to help me not get sick. And four out of five times, I don't get sick. 
um, after I take airborne. Um, of course, four out of five times when I fly anyway, I don't get sick. But with airborne, I think, um, well, that was just because it was that really particularly nasty, probably overweight person three seats back. Because who is it not? If you happen, which rarely happens, I know, if you happen to sit next to a really attractive person who's your sort of social class or a little bit above, studies again would say this, is it ever that person's fault? No, it's never that person's fault um, because they're attractive and pleasant and, and that wouldn't be where you got the cold. It'd be someone who was particularly undesirable. So all of this is just who we are. It's our human nature and it's so easily played with uh, and we so easily deceive ourselves. Um, and so when Jesus asks, do you not understand? We don't. We just don't. Um, last, let's see, what do I want to do? i got some things queued. Um, I will do... All right. Uh, this made me think of, you know, when, you, when I was in school, some of you are my age, you'll remember... Um, um, remember, the teacher would get out the real to real projector and put it up. Mr. Grumbles doesn't like it. You how to wash your hands and all that stuff. Um, I used to love those days. Uh, and this is what makes me think of, because it's in sort of the same voiceover and all that. Uh, power of conformity, the same thing. We like to think that I wouldn't be Peter. Um, uh, probably not true. No, it's going to have a lot of personality variance that goes on with it. But here's a funny place. Uh, where they show the power of conformity that I'm not who I think I am. Um, my power of resiliency is not what I think I am. My power of choice is not what I think it is. Uh, and then we'll look at a scene from Dead Poet Society and then I'll wrap us up um, before we have to leave. This is in like two minutes. The gentleman in the elevator now is a candid star. These folks who are entering, the man with a white shirt, the lady with a trench coat, and subsequently, one other member of our staff will face the rear. And you'll see how this man in the trench tries to maintain his individuality. Little by little. <laughs> Not understand. With his hat off in the elevator. First, he makes a full turn to the rear, and Charlie closes the door. A moment later, we'll open the door. Everybody's changed positions. Group pressure for some good. Now, 
in a moment, I'm Charlie Sigmund, everybody turns over. There it is, notice. They take off their shirts. So much in that. Um, one reason I think it's funny is, is it, most of us who are laughing probably would say, "Well, yeah, I, I get it. Um, you know, I, I can see that because we've been in a similar situation. You know, how many of us have been in a party, and uh, you know, you just sort of you kind of run out of your things to say with the force, like, "Well, I got to go get something to drink," and so you just like go over there and t- t- turn, do whatever you're gonna, you know, just kind of do the walk and all that. It's kind of similar which is funny when it's there in an elevator or at a party or whatever else. Not so funny when you start to ask questions like, how could the church have been so blind in the middle of World War II and sort of let the Jews just go to the camps the way they did? Or, you know, looking back, in dark ages, dark, because there was no light shining in with the crusade. Well, this would be the root, this would be the root of what some is going on. Um, uh, may even go way out of my league at another time and start to think about how uh, sort of 2008, 2009 with the subprime lending crisis and all that even had a similar route to what's going on here. Jesus' question is one for all time. Do you not understand yourselves? And the answer is plainly no. <laughs> I don't get myself at all. And then, of course, then another big movie um, for those of us in our 40s, Dead Poets Society, the famous scene here in the courtyard. Two minutes, and they'll make a comment, and we'll break. There it is. Thank you, Mr. Dalton. Just illustrate the point. 
So, wow, what wisdom. Um, cynical uh, part. Uh, conformity. The, uh, I wrote down what he said. The difficulty of maintaining your unbelief in the face of others. And so all we need is a little bit of education. We won't fall prey to the, uh, to the elevator mishaps that the other people do. Or we won't uh, allow the church to descend into some sort of chaos like it did in World War II or the Crusades or Stalin. Or you could say now with the um, not even engaging in the idea of whether or not drones are an ethical use of war. You know, there's a lot to be said about that. Um, lots of different things to think about here in terms of conformity. If only we needed education, uh, somebody like a Professor Keating to, to show us that, that uh, uh, we need to be more aware of what we're choosing. Uh, the problem is, theologically you would say, nothing's really happened. All you've done is changed masters. Um, where if the master was before ignorance, now your master is the transcendentalist. It's uh, Emerson, Thoreau, and Thomas Keating. I think that's his name here. Um, Mr. Keating, whatever his name is. Uh, and the Bible would say that's not true. Um, uh, the Bible is clear. We have choice. There's a word I'd like everybody to remember. We have choice. When the Bible talks about having a bound will, the bondage of the will, Luther's great book, it's not saying you don't have choice. Um, it's just that we don't have the kind of choice that we think we have. Because the issue is not choice, which is why God is not a puppet master and sort of making you do all this and say all these things. It's not determinism. Uh, we have choice. The question is, to whom is our will bound? Uh, who is our master? And the Bible puts it very bipolar, one of two. Um, either you're a master of Christ or a slave. Your master is Christ or your master is the devil. You're a slave to Christ or a slave to the devil. The question is not choice. Um, it's not determinism. Uh, it's not, uh, the answer is not education or even awareness. And I'm a big fan of awareness, um, but that's not the whole thing. Uh, at the bottom we come to the realization, um, summary word, that I am my own worst enemy. And I will remain that um, until the end of the world. Um, until the end of my world, or until the end of time, when Christ comes back once and for all and finally. Uh, or until that time, in, whether it's in the sequence of, of these minutes and seconds and years that pass by, that I fall off the, the end of the rope and find Christ waiting for me and saying, I was here the whole time, sort of the addict coming to, uh, to realization that he was powerless and his life is unmanageable, um, uh, in some way or another that I, I find Christ waiting for me at the end of the world. To, do, to what end? To the exchange of a master. Um, to in that part of my life, uh, it's, not, it's not Thoreau, and it's not simply, well, now that I know that I would do that in an elevator, now I'm not going to do that anymore. But that's not it. Um, it's that we are bound to do that and we will repeat that again and again and again uh, and that we remain 100% needful of Christ um, who is going to the end of his world, the cross, um, 100% of the time um, as I'm never an accurate perceiver of myself or somebody else. Uh, the one thing needful is that I have to have Christ in his work in my life. So I'm going to leave it there because of time, um, but also to carry it over in the weeks to come. Um, since we're over, let me pray. Father, for, uh, 
for this day. Thank you. I ask that you would take this and make it, uh, make these words yours, wherever there's any part of your truth, and allow that to be remembered. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. See you all two weeks.